You're listening to a podcast by New Heights Church. We hope you're encouraged to glorify, grow, and go. What we do here at our church is just preach through the Bible verse by verse. Um, and so we find ourselves in chapter 33 of Genesis today. And so if you've got a Bible, uh, open it up or turn it on. We'll have the verses on the screen for you if you don't have either of those. Um, and we're going to look at Jacob's story. What we've done in Genesis is as we've really taken really the whole year to preach through this book, 50 chapters. Um, We've looked at uh, six different patriarchal narratives, uh, starting with Adam, then to Noah, then Abraham, Isaac, and now we find ourselves looking at Jacob. And then the last section is focused on Joseph, his son. Now, as we look at Jacob's story, what's happened thus far is he has Um, He has left the promised land. Remember, God brought Abraham out of Ur of Chaldea to come to this promised land, to be a son of the promise, to start a family. God blessed him with that family, and the the nation of Israel began through that. Um, But Jacob uh, had a a life of deceit in early adulthood and deceived his brother Esau. He uh, tricked him out of his birthright. He basically um, convinced him to give all of his his father's inheritance that he was entitled to over to Jacob. And so Jacob tricks him out of his birthright, and then he dresses up um, and deceives his blind father um, by pretending to be Esau um, as his father is nearing uh, old age and is blind and uh, actually receives the the firstborn blessing that Esau should have had. Um, Upon this happening, Esau vows to get revenge by killing Jacob. He, he begins to make plans. He says he's going to kill Jacob. And uh, Jacob, being a, the mama's boy that he is, uh, runs to his mom. And she says, you need to get out of Dodge, bro. And so he leaves the country and he flees to the land of his uncle Laban, uh, where he finds um, a, a wife, he thinks, but he marries her sister first. He is tricked, marries her sister, then marries her, then ends up marrying both of their servants. It turns into this whole, you know, Mari Povich type thing. And uh, they have 11 sons and, and a host of daughters. And they, they find themselves coming back to the promised land because God appears and tells him, hey, it's time for you to go back to the land that I promised to your grandfather and father. And so where we pick up the narrative today is Jacob has this enormous family and a lot of servants and a a lot of people in his uh, camp, and he is traveling back to the promised land, stepping foot in that promised land for the first time in two decades. He's been gone for 20 years. Now he realizes on his way back, oh crap, my brother's still there. Um, and he wanted to kill me last time I was in this place. And so he realizes that, you know, he might run into his brother at the grocery store and die. And so he starts to get scared. He starts to get worried about what's going to happen when he re-enters this land. And that's kind of sets the scene of what we're going to look at today in chapter 33. I have three things I want you to learn. Number one, I want you to understand very deeply that what scares you does not scare God. We'll see at the beginning of this story God's sovereignty to handle a situation that might be frightening to us or, or whatever circumstances we may find ourselves in in our lives. Secondly, I want you to make sure your motivations match your actions. The kindness that God calls us to is... Um, is emulated by the rest of the world as well. Lots of people are kind. Lots of people do charitable things. Christians do that as well. I want you to understand that we do that from a different motivation than the rest of the world. Um, I want our motivations to match our actions, that when we're kind to people, we're actually doing it because we want to glorify God, not to seek selfish gain. And then thirdly and finally, I want to encourage you to settle into God's plan for your life. The trick is understanding what God has for you and what God wants you to do. Uh, But once you understand what God wants you to do, as revealed to you from Scripture and through prayer, Um, you settle into God's plan and you pursue it with all your might. So let's look at this first point. 
What scares you does not scare God. What we see in this situation that Jacob's found himself in is God is completely in control of the whole thing. Um, this is really, really seems to be a theme throughout the whole book of Genesis that God's sovereignty is on full display with all the craziness that happens. And as he's coming back into the land in chapter 32, so I want to back up a little bit to give you a little bit of context. In 32 verse 6, um, what happens is Jacob sends messengers out to kind of scope out, is Esau out there? Has he heard that I'm coming? And so Esau has gotten word, and verse 6 says, the messengers returned to Jacob, saying, we came to your brother Esau, and he is coming to meet you, and there are 400 men with him. Then Jacob was greatly afraid and distressed. So Jacob finds out through his messengers or servants that he sends ahead, uh, these scouts, that Esau is there, that he has 400 men with him. Now what's very important to this narrative is to understand that Esau doesn't have his wife with him. He doesn't have his children. This isn't a family reunion. He's not bringing just his, his family and friends out to meet Jacob. It's Esau and 400 men. Um, they are on a military march uh, to find Jacob. And so Jacob, rightly so, is greatly afraid and distressed. And that's where we pick up in chapter 33. Now what Jacob does is he sends an enormous amount of animals, it's like Petco on steroids, to Esau. Um, the, the current day value is over $600,000 worth of animals that he gives as a gift to Esau to bribe him into letting him live. And then we pick up here in chapter 33. It says, and Jacob lifted up his eyes, verse one, Jacob lifted up his eyes and looked and behold, Esau was coming and 400 men with him. So he divided the children among Leah and Rachel and the two female servants, and he put the servants with their children in front, then Leah with her children, and Rachel and Joseph last of all. Oh, no, he didn't. You guys realize what he just did there? He just ranked his family. He has four wives. He ranked them in order of his favorites and the children with him, right? So like Jacob's, he's kind of a slimy guy. And so he's like, okay, I'm, I'm most okay with this wife dying and her children with her. And then, and then, you know, less okay with this next wife and on down the line. And I'm going to put Rachel um, and Joseph in the very back because I want them to survive. Now, now we can look at him and judge him all we want, but you guys do the same thing at your weddings. Um, I'm, I've done enough weddings to be a wedding planner at this point. And it's always awkward at the rehearsal dinner because I'm like, okay, who's the maid of honor? Who's the best man? And then who barely made the cut of bridesmaids, right? It's like, because you got to line them up in the right order, right? And, um, and, and so that's kind of what he's doing. He's ranking, you know, his, his family. And what, what, I, what I want you to see, though, is not the deplorable nature of how he's lining up his family, but I want you to see what his mindset is. He is most certain that these men are coming to slaughter their entire camp. He is most certain that they're going to encounter um, violence and probably death. And so as he is marching toward this um, and, and, and stepping into this, fear is gripping him, but yet he still musters up at least a little bit of courage to go out in front. Verse 3 says, He himself went on before them, bowing himself to the ground seven times until he came near to his brother. Now, we're going to talk more later about Jacob's intentions and motivations, which are a little bit unclear of why he does what he does. Uh, but here we see very clearly he takes a posture of humility. Now, most uh, commentators that I studied this week say that as he comes out in front of the camp and bows down to his brother, that is most likely a show of respect and repentance to Esau. 
Uh, John Calvin uh, argued that he was bowing down in prayer not to Esau, but to God for safety and deliverance. But whatever the case is, his posture is very important, and it shows that he is humbling himself and begging for mercy from someone, whether it be from God, from Esau, from both. Um, He is in a place where he feels like death is imminent. So it's about to go down. And then we get to verse 4. It says, But Esau ran to meet him and embraced him and fell on his neck and kissed him, and they wept. Now, what, what happens here is completely the opposite of what you would expect to happen. Esau runs toward him. He's running. I, I just imagine the, the encampment, because I, I picture the Bible as I read it, I just see it like Braveheart. Like Esau's got half of his face painted blue. There's all these men behind him. And as he begins to run across the field, he drops his sword as he begins to weep, and he, and he embraces Jacob instead of slaying him. And he kisses him. What, what, this warrior, this, remember he's covered in red hair. He looks like Bigfoot. Like it's this Sasquatch warrior guy just completely breaks down and, and forgives his brother and shows an expression of love to his brother. Now, from what Esau does, I remember learning about this in Sunday school. I, I always kind of assumed that, that Jacob just misunderstood the whole thing. Like Jacob was just paranoid and he was worried and he was anxious for no reason. And in actuality, what was happening was Esau was planning a welcome home party all the time. Like when he got out to the field, they had a big banner that said, welcome home, Jacob. And they're like, hey, we have ice cream cake, you know, and they were just like waiting to welcome them. Um, And it was just a big misunderstanding. But I I think as you study this, it becomes clear that, that Esau's plans were not to welcome his brother. Again, there are no women or children with him. He didn't bring his family out to meet Uncle Jacob. Um, He did not uh, have any intention of uh, welcoming with any hospitality. I think that's proven by the fact that the servants and the messengers, when they come back to Jacob and say, Esau and 400 men are coming for you, Jacob, it says, is greatly distressed and afraid. And they don't say, no, Jacob, calm down. He's got cake. It's okay. Right? No, they're like, yeah, you should be scared, bro. You're going to die. Like, it's, it's looking bad out here. And, and so they come into this, and, and what I want you to see is Esau's intention upon meeting his brother was to kill him, yet something miraculous happens, and he's completely broken and forgives him instead. Well, how does this happen? It wasn't Esau just got good all of a sudden, and it certainly wasn't that Jacob got good all of a sudden wasn't his bowing down. God's at play here. We see this all throughout the Bible, right? The, the unseen hand of God, the sovereignty of God, moving upon the circumstances of men to make things work out to his glory. You see, the day before, Jacob had prayed and asked to be delivered from the thing that he feared most. And so let me remind you, what scares you does not frighten God. In chapter 32, verse 11, Jacob prays to God, Please deliver me from the hand of my brother, from the hand of Esau, for I fear him that he may come and attack me, the mothers with the children. God changed his heart. When Jacob prayed the night before, God answered in Esau's emotions. That night, you remember what happened that night after Jacob prayed and asked for deliverance? He was attacked that night, but not by Esau. He was attacked by God himself. It's, it's what scholars call a theophany, an appearing of, the, of God the Son in the Old Testament. Colossians 1 says any appearing of God is, the exact, is Jesus, the exact image of the invisible God. And Jesus shows up and actually wrestles with Jacob 
Remember, they, they have this big wrestling match, and it lasts all night, and he, and he knocks his hip out of socket so that Jacob's limping the next day. And so as he comes in thinking he's going to have to fight for his life, he's limping because Jesus had wrestled with him the night before. But what he doesn't realize is that while he was wrestling with God, God was wrestling with Esau's emotions. And while he was waiting for defeat to come, instead of defeat coming, Jesus shows up. And that's, what, that's all of our story, right? That Jesus shows up in our lives when we expect him least but need him most. While sin crouches waiting to devour us, Jesus shows up instead of the enemy because that's how our Savior operates. He operates on his timing and his ways. And Jesus comes and he wrestles with Jacob, keeping Jacob away from Esau while he's angry. Keeping Jacob safe until Esau's anger would be abated by God's sovereignty. See, Jacob, what he needed most that night was to stay put. If he had crossed that river and gone into Esau's territory, he would have certainly died. And Jesus wrestled with him to keep him exactly where he was because Esau needed to sleep on the decision he had made. Listen, I know that there are things happening in your life that have come at you, seems like out of left field, and come at you sideways, and you have no idea why God's allowing things to happen to you. I can promise you Jacob was confused when he was wrestling with God. But what if God is preoccupying you while he works on things coming at you? While he prepares a way for you, child of God, to be blessed by him, and you feel like you're being persecuted by God, but it's actually for your good. What he did while he wrestled with Jacob was he turned Esau's rage into forgiveness. Matthew Henry commentates on this passage, and he, said, he wrote it this way. He says, God has the hearts of all men in his hands and can turn them when and how he pleases by a secret, silent, but resistless power. Child of God, listen to me clearly. You can rest in God's sovereign plan. And if you feel like you don't know what you're doing, that's okay because your Savior does. Point two, make sure your motivations match your actions. Um, we see actions. Actually, when Jesus tells us not to judge, we have, like, that's quoted to us all the time. Thou shalt not judge, which just means don't tell me what I'm doing is wrong. Jesus actually tells us to judge actions. He tells us to call out sin and to call sin what it is. I think when Jesus says don't judge, he's telling us not to judge people's hearts because we can't see people's hearts. But we can judge actions. But here, uh, Jacob has some really noble actions but I've got some doubts about his motivations because Jacob's just kind of a slimy character in the Bible. He's, he's really the worst. But, um, but nevertheless, however you read this, you might read his actions with Esau. He's very lovey-dovey with Esau, um, this man that he's wronged. And you could read this with like an optimistic mindset, like assuming the best in Jacob. Like he's really, he's learned a lot. He's grown up and he's just trying to be nice to his brother. Or you could read it with a pessimistic outlook and be like, he's still slimy. He's still just gross old Jacob. And, um, and I don't know where you... How many optimists we got in the room? Raise your hand. Show of hands. Optimists. All right. Hands down. Pessimists. Pessimists. All right. Some of y'all didn't raise your hand. I don't know where y'all... You're just neutral. Some of y'all didn't raise your hand. You're like my wife. You're pessimist, but you don't identify as a pessimist. You just say you're a realist. Okay? You're a pessimist. Okay? You're a pessimist. All right. Just wanted to help you with that. Um, so... I'm, a, I'm an optimist. I, I like to assume the best in people. I'm far too trusting of people. 
except with Jacob. Like, Jacob makes me a pessimist. So I want to I look at this next passage with, from two different angles. Let's start with pessimism, because that's, that's my view. Um, but then I want to I actually see some optimism in his motivations as well. But let's start with hating on the guy. Verse 5. Uh, it says, when Esau lifted up his eyes and saw the women and children, he said, who are these with you? And Jacob said, the children whom God has graciously given your servant. So he begins by, he begins pretty good. He bows down in humility. He acknowledges that the family and the wealth that he has is a gracious blessing from God. He doesn't say, I've worked my, my butt off to get all this stuff. He says, God has blessed me with this. But then Esau asks why Jacob sent that really large gift of livestock to him. And this is where it just gets slimy, okay? Verse 8, Esau said, what do you mean by all this company that I met? And Jacob answered, to find favor in the sight of my Lord. Now, he's not talking about God. He's talking about Esau when he says, my Lord, in this passage. But Esau said, I have enough, my brother. Keep what you have for yourself. And Jacob said, no, please. I have, if I have found favor in your sight, then accept my present from my hand, for I have seen your face which is like seeing the face of God, and you have accepted me. Now remember the pessimism that we're all on right now, okay? Doesn't, this, doesn't he just kind of sound like a car salesman? Like, you just, like, like when you go to buy a car and the salesman compliments you on anything, you just don't accept it because you know they have an ulterior motive? That's just kind of what it feels like here. He says, I mean, he's talking to a guy that looks like Sasquatch, and he says, you look like your face, man. You look like the face of God. Handsome, brother. And... Um, and it just feels over the top, right? And, and so I just begin to question his motives. His actions are noble, but are his motives. It seems like he's still selfish, seeking his own safety. And Esau actually promises to give him safety, um, knowing that he's worried about his safety. He's in the land of Canaan. Canaanites are living there, a, different, a foreign family um, that would be a threat to them, uh, militarily speaking. And Esau offers his army, basically, as protection. And look at what Jacob does with it. Verse 12 says, Esau said, let us journey on our way. I'll go ahead of you, meaning he'll protect him. But Jacob said to him, my Lord knows that the children are frail and that the nursing flocks and herds are a care to me. If they're driven hard for one day, all the flocks will die. Let my Lord pass on ahead of his servant, and I will lead on slowly at the pace of the livestock that are ahead of me and at the pace of the children until I come to my Lord and Sayer. So Esau said, let me leave with you some of the people who are with me. He said, let me, if I'm going to go ahead, let me at least leave some security detail for you. And he said, what need is there? Let me find favor in the sight of my Lord. Now, you guys know when you're invited to something on Facebook and you say why you can't make it and you know you really just don't want to make it. You pessimist people, I know you do this, right? Uh, or realist people, you know what I'm talking about. Um, and, and so you, you, you begin to make excuses. That's what Jacob does here. He's like, oh, I got, I got young goats and little kids, and your men are big and strong and fast, and I can't keep up with you guys. And he says, I'll just catch up with you later in Sayre. Um, he actually never goes to Sayre. There's nothing recorded in the Bible of him ever going to Esau's land after this encounter. And so again, with the pessimism, you can make of it what you want, but you see some sinfulness in this. He, he ranks his family members according to the order he's okay with them dying. He overuses flattery to a reprobate man, and he straight up lies and says, I'll catch up with you in Sayre, and he never goes there. That's the pessimist side. Let's look at the optimist side. Maybe Jacob's got some redeemable qualities, right? At least he acknowledges that his family and wealth are from God, right? He says, all this grace 
is, is just given to me by God. I didn't work for it. God's been gracious with me. Um, maybe he's, if you're an optimist, maybe Jacob's genuinely thankful that Esau has forgiven him, and that's the, the, the reason for all that flattery language. He's just overjoyed and thankful that he's been forgiven. Um, and you do have Jacob as a, a man of prayer. Uh, the night before, he prays for deliverance, and he receives it from God. And that's a good thing. Um, and then also he seems to testify of God's goodness to Esau. And so wherever you fall, whether you look at Jacob pessimistically or optimistically, I want you to see in Jacob yourself. Because most of us live in this muddy mix of motivations. And as you look at your own actions, you'll have some really good actions in life, some, really things, some things you're really not proud of in your life. And, and even all of your good stuff, the motivations in your heart behind them can be masked to all the people around you, your family, your friends, the people that you're showing kindness to, but God knows your actual heart in those motivations. And some of the things that you do that are good and kind and charitable are really done just because you want to glorify God. But if you're honest, some of them are done because you want to bring glory to yourself, or you want to help yourself, or you want to serve yourself rather than serve God. And so all of us are really just as despicable and deplorable as Jacob with this mixture that cannot even be divided and figured out of good motivations and bad motivations. But what I want you to see in that is that in all of our messed up lives, God is still at work making us look more like him in the future than we did in the past. Like if you came to New Heights looking for a perfect church, you don't have to be here very long to figure out this ain't it. And, and I've had a lot of people come into our church and say they're really thankful for our church because we've treated them kind and they came for the first time and got a free t-shirt and that's really cool and, you know, we have mediocre coffee um, and yada, yada, yada. And my old church was just horrible and I hated it and people made me mad and on and on and on. And I always just, you know, say, well, give us time. We will let you down. We will make even worse coffee and we will not be able to afford t-shirts, and we will talk about you behind your back, and we will sin against you because we are sinful people. We're not trying to sell you on ourselves. We're not trying to sell you on a brand. We're trying to sell you on our Savior and show you that he is good, that he is grand, and that he is to be worshipped and glorified, not us. And so as Jacob comes with this confusing language and mix of motivations, there's something Jacob has that Esau doesn't. And we, we get a hint of it in the Hebrew language in verses 9 and 11. In verse 9, Esau says, I have enough, my brother. He says, I've got enough. When, when he's saying, I, I don't want to take all these animals from you. I don't need all this wealth you're trying to give me. I have enough. He uses the Hebrew word. So we lose it in English a little bit. But he uses the Hebrew, Hebrew word rav. And it means plenty or much. So this is a good translation. He says, I have enough. He's really saying, I have a whole lot of stuff. And Jacob answers a similar thing back to him and says he has enough in English. But in Hebrew, it's a different word. In verse 11, he says, please accept my blessing that is brought to you because God has dealt graciously with me and because I have enough. Thus he urged him and he took it. So in the English Standard Version that I'm reading from, both words are translated enough, but the Hebrew word that Jacob uses is a little bit different. It's the Hebrew word kol, which means all or everything. And the difference in what they say to one another, I think, really shows a beautiful picture of where they stand before God. Esau says, I've got a lot of stuff, and I don't need your stuff. And Jacob says, I have everything. I have all. Now remember that Esau is not saved. He's reprobate. 
the wrath of God rests on him. The rest of the Bible makes it clear that he might make amends with his brother, but he doesn't make amends with God for the sins that he commits. All of Genesis, the book of Obadiah, uh, the New Testament even, all testify to the fact that Esau uh, dies and is separated from God in God's anger and wrath and torment for eternity. And this unregenerate man is able to stand in front of his brother, whom he's forgiven, done a very good work toward, and say he doesn't need his wealth, he doesn't need a gift because he has much. But the son of promise, Jacob, in God's grace, responds, I have everything. I have all. You see, Esau says he has enough, but Jacob says he has everything. And it reminds me of Ephesians 1, verse 3. She recited part of it in the confession this morning that says that, that God has blessed us with every spiritual blessing. Now you could misunderstand that and say any spiritual blessing you get comes from God, which would be right, but I don't think that's all that that verse is saying. It is saying that every spiritual blessing you will ever get is yours right now. You already possess it and own it, not because you've been good enough, but because Jesus accomplished it for you. Everything, every spiritual blessing is yours. Now, you might not have stuff. Y'all seen the price of groceries? It's insane. You might struggle to pay your bills. You might not have everything you need. You might lack severely in this life, but spiritually speaking, the Bible is clear. If you place your faith in Jesus, you have everything. You have it all. And this is what the world doesn't understand. Because Christianity is not a religion of works. And we do things that, that really counteract the, the grace that we've been given by God. The world may offer a lot and the wicked may prosper and they may have a lot of things and even do good things. And while we may stumble and fall and sin, we still have more than them. You see, this is what's hard for people to wrap their minds around. The most disobedient Christian is still closer to God than the most charitable non-believer. That means if, if you have yet to surrender your life to Jesus and you think you can get close to God by doing a lot of humanitarian aid and charitable contributions and, and being kind and loving to people and, and just being the best you and having your good outweigh your bad, you will fall enormously short on judgment day. And God will say to you, Depart from me, I never knew you. And you'll see people who have lived by your standard far worse lives than you and have done far less good deeds than you who, are set, who said, welcome in, good and faithful servant. How in the world does that economy of God work? Because it's not of works. We enter into grace not because of all the good we do, but because Jesus has worked for us, has lived a perfect life for us, but then what's that create in us? A response of good works. That once we realize, hey, the world may have a lot, but in Christ I have all, then we settle into God's plan, which is point three, which actually leads us into doing good works and a realization that we should do more good than those who don't know Christ. That we should give our lives away. That we should sacrifice everything for the sake of his glory. And for all Jacob's sliminess, we still see glimmers of obedience to God. To his credit, at this point, he's journeyed back into the land of promise, a dangerous place. And significantly, at the end of this chapter, he buys the first dwelling land. Abraham had bought land in the promised land, but he just bought burial plots so that he could bury his family. 
Jacob here, for the first time, instead of being a sojourner and just dwelling in land that he doesn't own, he actually puts his money where his mouth is and buys land for his family to live on. Genesis thirty-three eighteen, and Jacob came safely to the city of Shechem, which is in the land of Canaan, on his way from Padan Aram, and he camped before the city. And from the sons of Hamor, Shechem's father, he bought for a hundred pieces of money the piece of land on which he had pitched his tent. There he erected an altar and called it El Elohi Israel. El Elohi Israel means God, the God of Israel. Remember that Jacob's name is changed to Israel, which is a compound word in Hebrew of struggle and God, meaning God would struggle with man, bringing them into his family, redeeming them, but also that God would fight for us. And so in our faith, we're not, we're not in a religion where we have to fight and climb and claw our way to heaven. We are in a safe and secure family, secured by Jesus' death on the cross and resurrection. He has done all the work for us. And as he goes and he actually puts his money where his mouth is, settles into God's plan, he buys land, the first thing he does is build an altar, a place of worship. The word actually means a, a killing table, a table for animals to be sacrificed in worship of God. Matthew Henry continues in his commentary, where we have a tent, God must have an altar. Where we have a house, he must have a church. What Henry means is wherever we find ourselves in life, we need to have places of worship. And I'm not just talking about buildings to worship in. I'm talking about routines of worshiping God, rhythms that include God's plan into our lives, that we settle into God's plan for our life. We put down roots in what he wants for us. We invest in his kingdom and we seek after it with all our might. You see, we don't come to church because we need to to get to heaven. We come to church because it's good to and because we've already been given heaven. You know, you know that feeling when football comes back that we're all enjoying right now? And that feeling when you sit down to watch a game and you don't have any food with you? And even though you just ate, you, just, you can't watch football without eating, so you just keep eating? Anybody else? That's just me? Okay. But, okay, amen. And, and like when it's a night game and I'm getting in bed, like I know I shouldn't be eating that late at night. It's bad for my, my health and my, my belly and my heartburn and all that stuff. But I'm like, you know, I'm watching football in bed. I just need a little snacky snack, right? <laughs> just going to go get it. You know, grocery prices are up. My wife bought these knockoff Slim Jims, and they ain't even good, but I'll go get them and eat them in bed. <laughs> it's just what we got to do, okay? And now if my wife were to say to me, why are you eating so late at night? And I said... Because I'm a human and I have to eat to stay alive, like that wouldn't be a good answer, right? I had breakfast, lunch, and dinner, and usually a second dinner, and then I'm in bed like eating snacky snacks. I'm not eating for sustenance. I'm eating because it's good, right? And a lot of people, when they say things, silly things, that are, that are like, well, you don't, have to, you don't have to go to church to be a Christian. What they're misunderstanding is the goodness of church. What they mean is you don't have to you don't have to do works to be saved, which I would agree with, but you're misunderstanding the goodness of this family, the blessing of Slim Jims, I mean the church, right? <laughs> right? Like you're just missing out. Like, and so, so people that, that just, just discard this 
Are, are, something's not clicking in their mind about God's goodness. You, you don't come and fellowship and, and make worship a routine because you have to do it to get access to God. You do it because you've been given access through Jesus' work on the cross. My favorite thing about Shechem is this place where Jacob buys. Thousands of years later, Jesus went there. And it's in, in John chapter 4, if you want to read about it this week for homework. But he goes there. If you, if you know the Bible at all, you know this is the encounter of the woman at the well. And at the time, thousands of years later, by the time Jesus comes, what had happened is um, the people that lived in a land that was then known as Samaria in Jesus' time, which was Shechem in Genesis' time, um, had begun to marry other, other nationalities and infuse religions and, and multiple gods were worshipped there. And it caused a, an ostracizing from the people of Israel and really a blatant racism of Jews toward them to the point that people would walk around Samaria, travel around Samaria rather than go through it. And the Bible says in John chapter 4 that Jesus had to go through Samaria. I love it. It says he had to. And he goes into a town called Sychar, which is anciently known as Shechem. And he sits down at this well known as the Well of Jacob. Jacob dug it himself thousands of years before. And Jesus shows up, and it's like, Jesus is like, it's good to be back. I love Jesus' encounters like this, where you see that Jesus is God, that he's sovereign, that he wrestled with Jacob in Genesis chapter 32, that he appeared at Shechem, Sychar, Samaria, to Abraham in Genesis chapter 12. Jesus had been here before, and he sits down in this well, and this woman comes, and he begins a conversation with her. And she says to him in verse 12, Are you greater than our father Jacob? He gave us the well and drank from it himself, as did his sons and his livestock. And Jesus said to her, Everyone who drinks of this water will be thirsty again, but whoever drinks of the water that I will give him will never be thirsty again. The water that I will give him will become in him a spring of water welling up to eternal life. And so Jesus tells her, by the end of this, he's, he, she says, well, when the Messiah comes, we'll get it all figured out. And he says, the man that's talking to you is the Messiah. He says, I'm him. Jesus answers the question she asked in verse 12. Are you greater than our father Jacob? His answer is yes. I, I put his hip out of socket, not far from here. I was with him when he dug this well. And as he sits on the side of that well that Jacob dug, he tells this woman that of, of, a, of a spiritual well, that will end thirst forever. You see, you don't, you don't make the worship of Jesus and your life revolving around the gospel. You don't do that because you're thirsty for a relationship with God. You do that because the thirst has been quenched. And if you get that backwards, you'll become a religious Pharisee your entire life. Or you'll become someone chasing after the prosperity of God physically rather than the blessing of God spiritually. What we understand is we don't come because we're thirsty. We come because Jesus has taken away our thirst. We're completely fulfilled in, here, in him. What else could the world do to us? Who can touch us? We are children of the highest king. The price has been paid. The war has been won. Jesus has accomplished absolutely everything for us. So as an act of worship, Jacob erects an altar at Shechem, begins to have worship services at Shechem, a table for killing. And I know it's gruesome to think about, but 
We mirror this today with two tables up at the front of the room and one in the back of the room, a table for killing, except we don't kill any more animals because the perfect lamb has already been slain. Jesus has died in our place, and the price for our sin has been paid. The bread that's on these tables represents his body that was nailed to a cross. The juice that's on these tables represents his blood that was shed to pay for our sins. And if we trust in him, we come to this altar. Not because, not because we have to come and get approval week after week after week, but because he took care of it at the cross. As we look back and we, with thankful hearts, we say, Jesus, thank you for adopting us into this family, for making it possible for us to be redeemed. And if you're not a Christian, you've never committed your life to Jesus, I would just want to show you how easy this is. It's not, about, it's not about religion. It's not about getting all your ducks in a row and getting everything just right. It's about surrendering your life to him and admitting that without his grace, you are completely worthy and deserving of God's wrath and punishment. But with his grace, you can be given eternal blessings, every one of them, right now today. We hope you enjoyed the podcast. To learn more about New Heights Church or a relationship with Christ, please visit our website at www.newheightswv.com.